Good morning, Arcadia. This is the first episode of the Arcadia Ledger podcast. I'm Ginger Bell, and I'm here with Katie. Hi, everyone. This is Katie, and welcome to the first episode of the Arcadia Ledger podcast. We are so excited to be talking all things Tales of Arcadia today, and I am joined by the lovely Ginger. So what exactly brought you to the uh, fandom, the whole franchise? What made you start watching Troll Hunters and Tales of Arcadia? So... I began watching Tales of Arcadia actually due to the How to Train Your Dragon TV series on Netflix. I was very it was at the end of season 6. I was very upset that it was ending and a lot of fans in the forums suggested that I watch the show Tales of Arcadia. And I was looking for a new animated series to enjoy so I decided to give it a shot and I immediately fell in love. I binge-watched most of the first season of Troll Hunters in about a day. <laughs> and um Gosh, over the next couple days, I happened to have a few snow days at school, and I watched the entire thing and became an instant fan. And about a year later, I made my Tumblr. That's really cool. Yeah, I first started watching this show. I was a not really a much of a blogger. I mostly just used my blog for pictures of pets and stuff. And one of my friends got into the show, and she's like, oh, hey, you should give this a shot. It's right up your alley. No fantasy, monsters, magic. And... I'm like, okay, kind of looks like a kid's show, but I'll give it a shot. I loved it. From episode one, I was absolutely just loving the magic and the characters and the chemistry. They all had interacted with each other. And Kelsey Grammer as Blinky is perfect. That yes. posh, that posh <laughs> mid-Atlantic accent he does is just perfect. And Mark Hamill as Dictatious. I mean, okay, you got Luke Skywalker. Okay, it's awesome. But I think when I saw that he was the voice of Dictatious, I could not believe it. I was like, they have Luke Skywalker on here. They have Cersei Lannister on here. It was unreal. And I too fell in love from the very first episode. I what really pushed me to watch it was actually when I saw that it was from Guillermo del Toro, who is one of my favorite creators. And the second that first episode started, I instantly saw his magic written all over it. Yes. Magical. Just magic. Magical is one really great way to describe the show. But I think what really brought me into the series and what I really started gaining me traction was the character of Morgana, because Guillermo del Toro has a very fascinating cinematic history in which a lot of times the monster isn't really the monster. Like, it always turns out to be somebody else. Like, in The Shape of Water, the bad guys were those scientists and the people turning against him and the... uh, woman but it's fascinating to see these characters who you know at first glance are oh horrible monsters or and i can see where morgana's plotline is going a horrible sorceress but they're not there's always a sort of i don't want to say red herring but i feel like a a the janus order is represented by a two-faced mask and i feel like that theme is gonna really come into play in wizards because We've had characters so far who are literally two-faced with the changelings. Yes. However, they can't really do that anymore. So who else is going to get their mask removed, both proverbially and literally? Very true. Um, another thing I find fascinating about Gormel del Toro and his writing is that, well... Let's be really honest. Most of the heroes of his shows aren't exactly the typical hero. Like, there's a mute woman, a monster, small children, 
Yes. Or I think a, a young girl time. in Pan's Labyrinth yeah, or a Labyrinth Delfano. Yes. It's always the person you wouldn't expect, you know, see wielding a sword, charging into battle, sword drawn, banner flying kind of thing. And I think that's kind of the point Gromel del Toro is trying to make with troll hunters. It's not always, you know, the hero in shining armor. It's not always, you know, in this case, the magical wizard who, you know, swoops in to save the day, but he doesn't. And I feel like the storytelling is pointing us in a direction where the hero, hero or whoever people call the hero isn't exactly who everybody thinks they are. Like, take Steve, for example. Everybody thought he was this giant, jerky bully, but it turns out he just had a really rough home life. And once he got past that hard shell, he was a really soft, really dynamic character. I mean, he's a total dunderhead. Yes. But Anya loves him. And he's very sweet and loving towards her, even if he does absolutely be sometimes. And I myself is not going to lie. Um, before Sea Below happened, I was all in for Steely that Creep Slayers episode. I was like, I am down for this, and I was I was okay with it, either platonically or romantically. I was just excited to see these two characters growing growing closer, and the dynamics of Steve's character kind of not only changing, but deepening, and that we really saw why he used to act the way he did, where he was coming from, and we get to see him mature past that and come into his own. And his relationship with Aja also really, they bring out the best in each other, and I think that's fantastic. But you're absolutely right, Guillermo del Toro does have this way of subverting all expectations in his stories. I would even argue that Jim and Claire aren't even the traditional figures that you would expect from our, our leading man and woman. Um, you know, Jim is a lot softer, a lot less harsh than our typical male protagonist. He has a lot more emotional complexity, although part of that, I think, is just attributed to the quality of the storytelling. Um, but even Claire also has a fierceness to her that is not typically paired with the kind of bookish Ravenclaw character. Her strengths come in very different places than we are used to. And it creates a very interesting dynamic where we're looking, we're watching this show that by all means takes a lot of traditional adventure fantasy hero's journey tropes. And through these unique unique characters, through this unique world, an entire new exciting life is breathed into it. And that is the formula to quality storytelling. Yes. Like, there's a couple of fantasy series that have come out in the late 2010s that just kind of fell flat. Like, oh, I'd say the biggest example is Game of Thrones. They led their fans on for how many seasons? I never really watched it. But uh, the last episodes were apparently so bad, so tropey in the absolute worst possible way that you never hear about it anymore. Like, people aren't talking about Game of Thrones anymore. Because they took all these tropes and storytelling mediums and they used them in the wrong way. And take a movie like The Lord of the Rings. Basically, Tolkien invented the modern fantasy sort of story. Like, you know, you've yes. got the elves and the dwarves and the witches and wizards. Yes. And it Which was all also... creative. It was all new. And what I love about Tales of Arcadia is it uses these tropes. But it's like, if you're baking a pie... You're going to use a lot of similar ingredients to other baked goods, but it's not going to taste the exact same. And I feel like Tales of Arcadia is this really fresh take on 
the fantasy genre, the, especially with the three modern kids leaving a magical side life kind of thing, like you'd see in an anime or Harry Potter. Yes. And it retells it in this beautifully fresh way. Like mm-hmm. the parents, unlike a lot of stories, the kids have pretty good relationships with their parents. I mean, yeah, they're trying to hide their secret lives to protect them. But after the parents do find out, they're 100% behind their kids. And that is, to me, very refreshing. Absolutely. The parents are far more present than they typically are in this kind of story. And one thing I particularly love, and I, I did a very big post about this actually right after I made my blog, um, about how in this series we also have a very different kind of representation that we don't usually see, and that's different kinds of family situations. We have... A protagonist who grew up without his father and has a very close relationship to his mother. We have Toby, who is an orphan being raised by his grandparents. That is a very real story for many, many people. And you don't typically see that in media. Oftentimes, we have the dead parent as kind of a martyr when it comes to being an orphan. And we don't see that kind of dynamic that forms in real life. Even Claire, um, she's a politician's daughter. She feels this disconnect from her parents, that they don't spend any time with her, that she's just kind of a, almost like a piece in their, you know, in her, in her mom's uh, political campaigns um, to be in front of the camera and, oh, look at my beautiful children, which is something that happens in real life. Um, mm-hmm. And we see that with baby Enrique too. Um, a lot of people yeah. have joked about how when not Enrique crossed... Uh, when Enrique came out of the Darklands, however, the mom had been holding not Enrique on a camera and stuff, and all of a sudden it's just this, like, little demon changeling <laughs> on, camera, on camera, which would have been hilarious. Um, I, not Enrique would have loved the attention. <laughs> I have a lot of problems with the technicalities of that whole thing, but and also the fact that the Nunezes didn't notice that. So, <laughs> yeah, the changelings I, apparently I grow my... in their human forms like the humans would. But not Enrique was not growing. Sorry, Enrique was not growing in the Darklands. Like, we see that the babies stay babies. And he was down there for mm-hmm. a good two months. And you're telling me that his own parents didn't notice that their baby was suddenly two months worth of growth <laughs> smaller? Like, thank God for Claire, because I, yeah. I do not trust <laughs> the Nunez parents with this baby. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I think Mr. Nunez, Javier... He means well, but he comes across as sort of like, he, I feel like he kind of lives in the shadow of his wife, and maybe we'll see more of yes. this dynamic with her and Wizards. Because while Claire and Jim are kind of on their way to New Jersey at this point, what are the parents doing? Like, in Three Below, we saw them run past the window, and Raduxi was sort of serving a platter to uh, Barbara and Strickler, and Arg was just kind of chilling in the background. So I kind of wonder yeah. what the dynamic's going to be between those guys. Like... It, does Ophelia have any sort of knowledge of the magical world? Because the trolls, we've seen them for five, six seasons of two different shows now. And it's pretty clear they really didn't have a whole lot to do with the wizarding world. So these three worlds have just been living their separate lives for probably since Merlin and Morgana split up. It must have been one heck of a breakup. But exactly... <laughs> What are they going to do when these worlds start colliding? Because the description for wizards describes them as fighting for power, but the magical ley lines that kind of flow through the universe can't really be harnessed like a battery or like a hearthstone. So I just got to wonder. And I have a lot of theories that is connected to tectonic plates. Um, The fact that it's in California, I think that's very, very fascinating. 
And that's something that you see in almost more like supernatural dealing with ley lines and all that stuff. Um, that's something you see in a lot mm-hmm. of supernatural storytelling where these kind of magical places, you know, where there's this sort of magical presence beneath the earth run alongside tectonic plates. And I almost wonder, like, are there different troll societies essentially living under the ground? I mean, yes, the trolls beneath Arcadia in America have been revealed. People know they exist now, but there are so many more around the world. We've been to visit more. We've seen different cultures within the troll world itself. It's its entire own subterranean world with its own unique races and cultures and all of that. And I think a big part of Wizards is going to be opening up this universe and seeing the implications of that and all of this coming together where... I mean, we also see how the trolls have connections to Acheridian society, um, which is a huge yes. part about how Three Below connects to troll hunters. And something I think some of our more Arthurian educated uh, viewers might infer is the name yes. of the staff of Avalon. So we've seen Troll Market. We've seen Acheridian 5. Mm. The Acheridian 5 is the homeworld of, well, obviously the Acheridians, Asha and Krell. And Troll Market and the subterranean world therein is the home of the trolls. So I feel like we're going to get a piece of literally Avalon. However, I feel like it lies on an entirely different realm of reality because one of Morgana's names is Argante, which Lady Pale. Yeah. Argante was the name Morgana was given after she was crowned Queen of Avalon. And she calls herself the Eldritch Queen of the Seventh Realm. So... Something tells me Avalon doesn't even lie on Earth or on another planet. I think it's just another dimension of reality altogether, which to me would kind of give cranes to the ley lines conversation where you sort of think they're all connected by those ley lines. Like that's like when you open a portal like Claire's shadow staff or the Yes, I was going, that's what I was thinking of. Um we they're connected by the ley lines. Yes, we've seen interdimensional travel in a sense in this series before. It is a very plausible theory. And there's also the fact that Morgana and Merlin seem to almost, in their abilities and in their history, going way further back than the trolls, the humans, even, I mean, the Acheridians actually strike me as a quite modern society. I don't think they've been around for very long. Um, Perhaps that's just me, but I never got the impression with the history that we learned from Aja and Krell's parents. But this, like, the fable of Seclos and Galen, I mean, the creation of the planet, it's also, the creation itself is entirely technological. Which also makes me think, was something brought over from the wizards, or Morgana and Merlin's dimension, or plane, as you want to put it, did that lead to the creation of Acheridium 5? Personally, I think so, because the Acheridians, while they seem a pretty highly technological, technologically advanced race, they're not that ancient. Like, we've seen they've messed up a lot of other planets. Like, it's almost like they're trying... When you think about it, I, I and this kind of goes off on a tangent, but the human world and the troll worlds both had a sort of renaissance, you know, our renaissance, you know, oil paintings and scientific advancement. But that happened right after the 12th century, the century that Morgana got still in the Hearthstone. So I'm almost wondering if Avalon and the Wizarding World would have had a similar sort of renaissance on their end, but instead of a renaissance of, you know, science and advancement, it was a renaissance of magic. 
Interesting. I like that theory. So to me, that would kind of wrap together the different aspects of each of the worlds. Because while the troll world was very distinctly, I guess, human, if you think about it, because they were sort of subsiding off the garbage and the throwaways of humanity. They had neon lights and TVs and cats. And a lot of their houses are built out of human materials. Yes, absolutely. The Alcaridians are distinctly, well, alien. Their world is created from technology and electricity, but we don't really know how old they are. So no, we don't. Their entire life forms, too. The trolls are like humans, where their life is organic. Um, whereas, and, and they joke about this in the very first episode of Three Below, whereas Acaridian cores are technological. They're not biological at all. So it is a very different, entirely separate society on its own that is perhaps, going back to that theory, more closely connected to the wizards, which we're going to see. Because what we've seen of wizards and who's connected to wizardry has felt very modern so far. I made a post joking about how the aesthetic of wizards so far in Tales of Arcadia with Claire and all that is basically punk rocker. (laughs) And (laughs) I, I think that it's just another way that Guillermo del Toro is going to subvert our expectations, where in the modern world, um, magic is heavily connected to technology. And thus, like, the Acaridians are the bridge between the troll world and the wizarding world. Yes. And something else I kind of think about is, like, how the sorcerers and how the wizards have kept themselves hidden for so long. So... That's where Avalon comes back in. My thought is that wizards and witches aren't really living every day amongst random people, but just so one either. or two might. Like, you know, your average, you know, works at Starbucks and goes home in the evening kind of witch would probably just live in Avalon. She wouldn't be on Earth. That would not be where she belonged. However, with characters like Duxie, who very much appears to have been working with Merlin a very long time before. Yes. And Morgana, who I have plenty of theories to uh, elaborate on later. Yes, I was going to say, we'll Those get to that later. Those characters <laughs> are super, super important, but they're also, I don't know if I'd call them powerful yet because Morgana's currently stuck in the realm of shadows and Duxie is working how many minimum wage jobs? But yeah, these characters are clearly very important to the later parts of the story. Yes, we've seen so, that these powerful figures are have almost been delegated to the role of humanity. Like you said, um, Doxy Dutsi, I, I can never figure out how to pronounce his name. <laughs> um, but he is, he, he's working at a restaurant. He's being a normal person, but he also, and I think this is worth noting, just randomly dropped in Arcadia one day, randomly showed up at the school. So perhaps it's something that people in the magical community do kind of integrate themselves into the human world because maybe now that Morgana and Merlin are gone, the wizard, the magicking the wizarding world has fallen apart and they have nowhere else to go. So they're just like refugees. They're escaping Avalon. Basically, not well like Ajahn Krell. Yeah, like Ajahn Krell, but it could, it could also be that Earth and the Hearthstones stand as a sort of disputed territory between Avalon and the Ocaridians or whoever they are that are fighting for it. So Morgana and I'd stretch to say her predecessor and brother Arthur would have been trying to gain control of the areas of the Hearthstone because of the mural made in painting that features Morgana stepping out of a portal, or at least the woman we assume to be from Morgana. Mm -hmm. And on either side of her are two armies, one of them in red and one of them in blue. 
up until late tr late troll hunters, the color blue was always associated with Merlin, the the uh, Amulet of Daylight, Jim, and our good characters. Yes. And the color red was always associated with like Gunmar and negativity. However, after he defeats Gunmar and gets turned into a troll, Jim's armor is pretty much permanently red. Right, so it's the I'm eclipse armor. Without choice, he can't armor. take it off. He can't change it. His color scheme has changed. It it's, so, has entirely subverted. It's now the opposite. Yes, it's now the opposite. And going into the color scheme of the series, gold is usually a color associated with corruption, with dark powers, with mind control. Yes. However. Something I've been looking on, looking into is in the scene in House Divided, in which Merlin is talking to the kids in the garage, his two shadows are two separate colors. The larger one is gold and the smaller one is purple. In the color scheme of the show, purple was always a color associated with like Claire, its intelligence, yes, its honesty. So the those are also opposite colors on the color wheel, which is very interesting. Yes. It's showing which a kind of two face. Personality yes. of Merlin, this other Claire's... side that's about to come out. Mm -hmm. I think the the shadow scene is a pretty good foreshadowing, but I can't be sure. But I did think about something. In co some concept art, Claire's armor is gold like Morgana's, but currently her armor is purple, opposite of yellow. Mm -hmm. So it could very well be that either Claire gets corrupted again, or and this is where my bigger, larger theory comes in. Morgana gets a redemption arc of sorts. Yes. And the way I see this, and you're probably going to have to edit out a bunch of ums and haws and whatever. Oh, it's fine. So Morgana's earlier portraits portray her as a woman with long, wavy, strawberry blonde hair. And blue eyes. And she's frequently... Blue Which eyes, is huge. Yes. That color associated was good. In Tales of Arcadia, a character's eye color usually denotes kind of their side, as weird as it sounds. For example, Nomura and Strickler both have acid green eyes, very much like Morgana's. Pretty much all the changelings do. Yes. Which is fascinating to me because in a lot of history and mythology, green eyes were often associated with magic. But earlier, Morgana's earliest portraits have her as a blue-eyed, blonde-haired woman wearing these flowing robes and her hair free to the wind. But in the mural maiden portrait, her staff is whole. The diamond at the top of it is one whole piece. But in Merlin's portraits and his tomb, her resting place or whatever we're calling it, the staff is shattered at the top, like something happened to it. And her face is now covered. So... So I think something happened between that whatever battle is being portrayed on that mural and Merlin taking her under his wing and I've been thinking about the different ways the series mirrors itself in different scenes and we all remember the scene where Claire is trying to get troll market to safety and she becomes originally corrupted by the shadow staff by using yes. a massive spell to open a portal and bring everyone to safety so what if that's what's being portrayed on that mural Morgana Perhaps. being corrupted by a huge spell, but in where Jim and Blinky and Toby and everybody ran to Claire's aid to help her channel this magic and not, you know, be automatically corrupted completely. What if nobody came to Morgana's aid? If she was doing that by herself, it would be an interesting mirror to what happened to Claire. 
because whatever created the staff, whatever is now corrupting and controlling her, started out with the staff, much like the Scrothoon shadow staff thing. And instead of having people come to her aid, whatever was in that staff or whatever corrupted her was allowed to completely take over. And the woman we see today is not Morgana. Whatever happened to Morgana, she's gone or something happened to her mind or her soul and she's just not there anymore. So I was also thinking about Claire and her shadow house. And they were able to rescue Claire's soul by getting her out of the shadow realm by the use of that little bunny toy and her defeating Morgana originally there. Susie snooze. <laughs> yep. And it just makes me wonder, like, if Morgana does get a redemption arc and if something were corrupting her, who'd come to her rescue? Like, who does she love? Like, Claire was able to come to Jim and Toby because she loves them both. And they had her little rabbit that she was emotionally attached to. But I can't name anybody in the series who would want to come to Morgana's rescue, who would be emotionally attached enough to her to come to her rescue. Actually, I just had a thought. You ready for some universe brain theory? Sure. Fire away. Because I've been sitting here and talking. I'm just thinking, okay, who would want to release Morgana and why? Who would clearly put themselves in enough danger just to get a possible source of power? Someone who had an emotional connection to Morgana in the past. Someone who knew her well enough to know where her soul might go if it weren't in her body. Someone like Merlin. And I can't believe I just said that. But if you think about it, believe it or not, I was thinking of Merlin as well. I mean, it's clear he's a pretty power-hungry person who's willing to sacrifice the people around him to get what he wants. But that might also extend to releasing his own worst enemy in an attempt for power. I mean, I would expect a Morgana redemption arc, knowing Guillermo del Toro. But I just kind of wonder about how these characters played into effect in the past. Like, is Wizards going to take place in the modern day, or are we going to see episodes that take place before everything went down? I think we are going to be getting many, many flashback sequences in Wizards, at least, if not entire historical episodes, really, um, where Merlin and maybe even Morgana, depending on the circumstances, explain all that happened. I mean, our main trio is going... Not trio, Toby's not there, which still upsets me. But Jim and Claire, yeah. um, as well as Blinky and Merlin, are going on a road trip. That's perfect storytelling time. Um, yep. You know, Claire would be exactly the kind of person to ask, like, so Merlin, like, how did you even get here? How did this all start? <laughs> um, and that could be a great opportunity. Long story. <laughs> yes, it's a long story. Yeah, we have a long journey to New Jersey, so get going. And... Um, and I think that's a very good opportunity to kind of get some backstory and some narration without it feeling info dumpy. Um, yes. And I think the series is for the most part going to very delicately kind of sprinkle um, those little flashbacks throughout. Very much yeah. in the style of the Dragon Prince, actually. Um, they do this a lot in season two, um, which you'll, you'll get to. You'll see what I mean. Um, Ginger's watching it right now. <laughs> Very exciting. Um, but I'm on episode five. <laughs> but um, entering into these flashbacks with these kind of 
raw, authentic, emotional moments where our characters in the present are thinking about this past, about this history. And thus, we see it as the audience to more fully understand their emotions. I think that's kind of what we're going to see in Wizard. <laughs> but yes, um, I absolutely think we're going to be getting a lot of history in Wizards, because I think so much of what connects all this together, so many of those dangling threads, those unanswered questions, and so much of how it's going to come together in the future for this epic battle, which is something that we all know is going to happen, so much of that is rooted in the history which led up to all of this and our main characters you know the treat the troll hunters trio um and Aja and krell and all of them are people who kind of just find themselves mixed up in that really in a much bigger story they're an important chapter they're an important part yes but there is a much larger narrative going on at play here and Thinking about that much larger narrative, I think I know who this would all lead up to. Looking at the threat of two godlike figures locked in battle for eons, Seclos and Galen, the two gods of Ocaridian Five, these yes. aliens who've been going around messing with planet after planet after planet and destroying civilizations and lives, it would make a lot of sense for them to come to Earth, see this magic and think, hey, I can use this to defeat Galen or Seclos or whoever's talking at the time. They wouldn't have any qualms about possessing or destroying the lives of these people if it just meant you know getting one more kick in or one more fight in with Galen or Seclos. Absolutely not. And I think that, oh, oh, I just had an, okay, I just had a thought. So, um, a lot of times in these stories, um, when you introduce these more high power, godly figures, we have something that awakens them, that explains why they haven't been in play this entire time. And I was just thinking, well, where have Seclos and Galen been all this time? Well, I just realized, what did we use at the end of Three Below Season 2? The cannon. Galen's core. Galen's core yeah. in the cannon, um, which is a weapon that Seclos used. So perhaps that woke them up. And perhaps this yeah. battle amongst aliens is what awakens the wizards and causes all this to come together. And then consequentially, Jim, Claire, and all of them are brought back to Arcadia because this is the hub of where all this is happening. Um, you know, Eli is typing up a conspiracy blog post as we speak, and um, that's how it all kind of comes together in this one special place, in this one town that's, like you said, on a ley line, somehow connected to this higher plane where for some reason everything is drawn here like a magnet. Arcadia is really a, you know... Eli calls it kind of a hotbed for supernatural activity, but it doesn't even seem like that to me. That seems too consequential. To me, it's almost a magnet. It's like intentional in fate that everything is pulled here and comes together. And that's what we're about to see happen, where all of these worlds are going to collide, both the three main worlds of the Trollhunter's world, the three below world, and the wizard's world, but also the various subworlds within those three shows, such as the troll world and all of that. Exactly. And I feel like the end of Three Below did a very good show of, of showing us what happens when they use one of these cores as a power source or to control something. When we watch General Miranda basically be corrupted by Galen's core, by the power 
it destroyed him. Like, I mean, the cannon was what did the final blow, but that he could not have been able to hold that magic for long. No. So I think that goes to show that something, if something is corrupting Morgana, it could very well be destroying her as it goes along. And if Galen's core is currently sitting, you know, in a box somewhere or in shatters on the pavement, then what exactly is powering the amulet? What exactly is powering Morgana? What's pushing them forward? Well, I think it's Morgana's hand that's powering the amulet. And we were talking about this um, the other day when we had our initial Skype call, but Morgana is connected to sun energy. Um, It's in the color scheme of her armor. It's in the nature of her powers. And I think that that's why it is an amulet of daylight, as you were saying, Um, because it is powered by Morgana's hand. And that's why Merlin used it. He probably knew that that was the only way to power this. It was the only source that he had. And he was big enough of a jerk to just cut off her hand and use it. which is a yep. whole, which is a whole other thing that I'm sure we're going to get more into, um, because the, mm-hmm. the thing is, our main characters do know that Merlin took Morgana's hand, but it was revealed to them in a very tense, stressful time of battle where Morgana was trying to kill them, so they ha- yep. <laughs> they haven't had time to reflect on that thought and be like, wait a second, like he he took someone's limb, you know, like, and yep. for his own gain, his own use, that's horrific. Um, she's an amputee now. And that's very, very, like, I think it's only in Wizards, because even Three Below Season 2 doesn't end that far after where we left off in Wizards, which is another thing that I think is very exciting. Three Below overlaps so heavily with Troll Hunters that we've been seeing kind of the parallel in the timeline to what we've seen, um, the same thing that's happening with the troll hunters now and Audrey and Krell's point of view, as they're there as well during the Eternal Night. But we haven't gotten yes. to move and that far past where the plot of troll hunters left off, and that's what Wizards is going to do, which is very exciting. Yeah. Yes, it's awesome. It's just so exciting. And I like seeing a tiny bit of overlap between Three Blow and Wizards because it shows this isn't just one event, then another event, then another event. It's like real life or real people's stories. They all overlap with each other. Right. So like, while Aja and Krell are running down the street, you've got this, you know, kid, possibly a wizard, serving dinner at his job nearby. And while they're all doing that, you know, I've got the guys on their way to... New Jersey. New Jersey. Right. Which actually leads me to my next talking point. Why New Jersey? Why would they be going to New Jersey? We've already heard Blinky say that that's where they landed when they came to the New World those hundreds of years ago. Right. So if there was a Hearthstone right there, why wouldn't they stop? I mean, if it was a nice, convenient Hearthstone right off the port. Right off the coast, hey, why exactly. Why not live there? Did something stop them? So this leads me to think, and especially Merlin with his heard tell of a hearthstone in new jersey there's no hearthstone there i really don't think there is and especially when we saw that phone call between toby jim and blinky and they're fighting that armored foe i really don't think there's a hearthstone there i think it was a trap but who would lay such a trap i can pretty much only think of one person who might be you know connected enough to merlin to communicate with him right after he woke from his own sleep and that would be the Lady Lake. 
And it would make sense for her to want to lead, to him, lead him to a trap because in the mythos, she just wanted his power. I mean, she pretended to be his lover just so she could get him close enough to basically turn him into a tree, seal him in a rock, or kill him in like 5,000 different ways just to steal his power. Right. So if Merlin awakes from his Odin sleep and, you know, he hears from his lovely Namui that, oh, hey, there's a nice, convenient hearthstone in New Jersey. You just have to go really far away from the people who might protect you. And it makes sense a little bit. But that's just my current theory. I mean, I could be completely wrong. There's a lot of speculation that Barbara might be the Lady Lake. And in the French dub of the show, her last name is Duloc. Not to be a pun on Shrek or anything, but it means of the lake. Right. So you literally have Barbara of the lake. And Jim is also multiple times referred to as Lancelot. Yes, and Lancelot, and this is where it starts to get interesting, was the adoptive son of the Lady of the Lake. Right. However... He was not the biological child of the Lady of the Lake. Now, Guillermo del Toro tweeted some time ago that in the last season of Wizards, we'll figure out who Jim's real father, quote-unquote, is. And that makes me think that Barbara might not be who she says she is. I don't think so. So, yeah, I'm very curious to see where this story's going, because I'm having trouble piecing the two together. Is the Lady of the Lake a separate entity we haven't met before, or is it a character who's basically been there the entire time? Now, considering who the Lady of the Lake is and what she represents in the storyline, it would make sense for her to be someone who was, you know, dramatically there the whole time. Mm -hmm. But I think if it were Barbara, then that just leads me to a whole bunch of other questions. But for the more observant viewers out there, you'll notice that there's a couple of paintings that keep reappearing over and over again in the series, and one of them includes Merlin recognizably at least, and two other people. One of them is red-haired woman strongly representing Barbara and yes. holding a sword or a knife. And the figure in the center is a very tall man with a lot of facial hair and wearing a crown and a banner that literally translates to king. So this is Arthur. I feel like eventually, <laughs> this is Arthur. I mean, literally, he's he's labeled like king. Like, hey, you might get some little arrows and some little pointy circles there. Like, hey. It's King Arthur, right here. Point to the crown, can we make it any more I, obvious? <laughs> it's like, hey, let's just underline this a few times. Get some neon up there. But what happened to him? I mean, our Morgana's name, Argante, was only given to her after Arthur's death. And Merlin carries Excalibur, which was Arthur's sword. But Arthur chucked that sword back in the lake in the end of the myths. Like before he died. He was dying of his injuries, so he just, you know eat the sword out into the lake and told Vivian to keep it and not give it to anybody else. However, why would Merlin have it? This makes me think that the Lady of the Lake is still alive somehow and that between the time of Arthur dying, Merlin leaving Avalon, and then eventually Merlin fighting Morgana and going into his coma of sorts, Vivian slash Namui slash Lady of the Lake gave him that sword or he took it. Now, now, that just gives me even more questions, because what is the staff of Avalon, and where does it fit into all this? But, to me, I'm going to concentrate on Excalibur, the sword, right now. It was actually the second sword, I believe, given to Arthur by the Lady Lake, after Caliburn, which was the sword in the stone, broke during a fight. Now, I sometimes kind of think that... And I'm not, and I'm not sure, sure how to word this correctly. You might have to edit this part, definitely. But, but Arthur, Arthur 
might, might be, a be a reflection of Jim. Of Jim. We see, we see a lot of Jim's, Jim's story, his self-sacrificing nature, his heroic persona, and he's kind and gentle. He's everything you'd want in a leader, but he wasn't enough. And we, and we see in the painting featuring Merlin and the sword lady slash lady of the lake, Merlin is offering Arthur a horn gozzle, and the red-haired woman is offering him a sword. So my thought is that when given the two choices, Arthur chose the sword, the fight, to fight as a human. But I'm assuming his injuries, which this is probably what would tie into mythos, which eventually ended him, would have eventually caused... Merlin to, you know, want to pick a new champion and develop the Amulet of Daylight so they couldn't really have a choice in how to fight. And much like his quote in this series, not a choice of whether to fight, but how. As well as the entire plot of The House Divided, um, what you're saying fits in perfectly to why else would Merlin insist upon creating this fusion between Troll and Hunter? Because he saw even, how it ended last time. Even if how he did it is horrifically mentally and manipulative and not okay. Abusive. Very abusive. Very. But something else that stuck out to me. The title of the episode is A House Divided. And the full phrase comes from A House Divided Cannot Stand. So in other words, by splitting apart the troll hunters. And even though Merlin thinks he's doing the right thing. Even though he thinks he's fixing the error of his past. by And by maybe by letting Arthur fight as a human. He thinks he did the wrong thing. And you know Avalon fell or Arthur fell and died. Because he wasn't strong enough to finish this battle. Which I almost think might be tied into the battle. That corrupted Morgana with the portal thing. But anyway. I think his insistence on turning Jim into a troll. Would be Merlin's blind attempt at fixing what he did in the past. Because yes. in the myths, he basically raised Arthur because, well, Arthur's dad was King Uther and Uther sucked. He was not not, not, not a good person, an even worse father. But, <laughs> to put it bluntly. <laughs> to, to put it gently. Just, just watch BBC's Merlin and you'll really hate Uther. <laughs> yep. And my thoughts is that he's basically making these blind grasps to fix the past. He's so blinded by what happened to him, he can't quite see that he's causing even more damage now. By taking Jim away from everybody he cared about and by literally dividing the house, he's just weakening the parties to be picked off one by one by, well, whatever the armored foe is and by the aliens and by the bad guys crawling out of the woodwork. So, so we're going to, I feel like the reuni reunification of these parties is going to be bittersweet because you'll have them all glad to see each other and one or two characters who think they're better off without each other. And if we take into account if Morgana were corrupted or possessed, which is an even scarier thought, yes. I just kind of wonder how Merlin would think about trying to fix that. Like, maybe he thinks, you know, he messed it up beyond her pair and there's no hope for her. Hence, you know, defeating her and just trying to get rid of her permanently. And getting that guilt off of his shoulders, essentially. Trying to get, it's like a man trying to swoop away a ghost of his past. Yeah, like. It's not going to work. He has, he has to, to actually fix it. it. And I mean, I talk about a Morgana redemption arc, but you know who really needs a redemption arc? Merlin. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think he's become like very misguided in his ways in his in his old age. Um, I think also has a lot to do with it. He has lived through so much history that it has entirely morally confused him, where he is doing so much mental gymnastics that his moral compass and way of thinking is entirely lopsided. 
um, in contrast to Jim, who is very grounded, um, as, as well as our trio in general, um, and our main protagonists. And I think a Merlin redemption arc, almost alongside Morgana, perhaps as even exactly. the re resolution of the conflict, where we see Merlin potentially recognize that he can help undo what he did and save Morgana, um, because they were close, and I think that he did used to care about her. But my question is, did he betray her? Um, did he take... Is he... Is him taking her hand part of the reason she got corrupted and changed sides? Or did he take her hand when she was already corrupted and thought she was beyond redemption and evil and there was nothing he could do? There's a lot of questions regarding the timeline here that Wizards is going to clarify, as we've been discussing, that I think is going to play a huge role in the dynamic there of how things went down. And is Merlin going to see the light? Is he going to see that that's not Morgana. She's been corrupted, which we see we um we were talking about this earlier. We both think that that's we both think that it's also connected to the green gem in her forehead. Um which mm -hmm. is color wise connected to the staff of Avalon and also could explain why her eye color changed from green to um from blue to green. Which is very a very sign of corruption. Yes, yes, absolutely a sign of corruption. And even a similarish shaded green to the changelings, who are constantly changing, mm -hmm. constantly corrupted, um, going in between worlds and forms. There you go. Yeah. And I feel like the two redemption arcs would be fascinating because if it came to be that Morgana were possessed or corrupted or trapped inside her own head this entire time, think about the misery and the terror she would have gone through watching her own hands do these sort of things and realizing she was completely out of control. She had no, I guess, autonomy. Like the complete loss of self and autonomy would be absolutely terrifying. Absolutely but considering the dark themes the show has already covered, I wouldn't be surprised if they went over it. But at the same time, this would make Merlin's actions fascinating from a dark standpoint, because all of his redemption would have to be coming directly from him. I mean, and if how, they uncorrupted Morgana. And how much could Jim, though, and maybe he'll be the one to see the light here and convince Merlin otherwise, because he's his champion. How much would Jim relate to that loss of bodily autonomy, though? Because he himself was manipulated into losing his physical form, being completely transformed, which... Honestly, we could do an entire podcast episode on that <laughs> alone. Um, it's oh, a, yeah. <laughs> it is a very controversial um, discussion and plot point of the series. Um, I think, yeah. ultimately, it's a parallel to Pier Gint, and we're going to see Jim turn back. That is at least what I'm Much hoping. Much like Pier Gint. Yes, exactly. Um, but And I feel like that would have to be, and if that did tie into all the redemption arcs, it would be a reunion point between Merlin and Morgana. Like, they come together to decide, okay, we gotta fix this. Yeah. And also, uh, Merlin realizing that in trying to fix what he did in the past, he almost just made... He just made himself... He Yeah, it's like he almost tried to do the opposite so much that he came right back around to the same thing that he made the same mistake of taking he so turned his champion against him and basically made him weaker like Jim's strength came from his ability to walk in sunlight and do things that trolls before him couldn't do and he can't do that anymore so and I really hope Jim doesn't wind up like Arthur because well 
Arthur's kind of dead. <laughs> Maybe actually very dead. So I, we'd like Jim to stay around. Well, I have theories that Arg parallels Arthur, not only in yes. his name, but also in his plot line of... And his, well, the facial hair. His facial yes. hair is almost identical to that dude in the portrait. It absolutely I mean, it, is. And, it's, and also, um, and his, that somehow his someone just adopted, had this spare baby Krubera... Yeah. yeah. Someone just had the spare baby Kubera just to give over to you, Cerna. Like, parents wouldn't do that. I mean, they claim he was an orphan, but, like, from who? Right. Where did he come from? Exactly. And his green, the green eyes are almost identical to Morgana's, as weird as it sounds, or that of a changeling. Yeah. So, and when he becomes enraged, his eyes come, become very similar to how Claire's were when she was possessed by Morgana, but instead of a yellow golden energy... It's a green energy. So yes, if almost like when Morgana's theory, eyes are possessed and entirely glowing. Um, it's mm-hmm. a, it's almost exactly the same, just a very different eye shape. Um, and obviously mm-hmm. looks very different without the cutouts that Morgana has in her helmet. But yeah, he also, and I think this is the, this is the most prominent thing for me that supports this theory, and that's that our died. And then came back to life when the time was most necessary. <laughs> um, yes, when just like how the mist described Arthur, Arthur. again. <laughs> so yes, it, his plotline in many ways is built up as paralleling Prince Arthur's. I think we've been given the promise of more history of Arg because there are a lot of gaps there, even from season one of Troll Hunters that are yet to be filled in. I'm sure even Blinky doesn't know everything. Um, Arg is someone who is you know, a person of very little words <laughs> um, or a troll of very few words. Um, he doesn't talk a lot and he has a lot of shame. But on that note, also, I think our, um, I think our, <coughs> excuse me. But on that note, I also think Arg could play a huge role in alongside Jim helping Merlin see the light saying, I know what it is to have shame in your past. I used to eat people. <laughs> I literally used okay. to eat people, but I have come. Up- I can see some comedy though. Oh, absolutely! I can see some, uh, like, imagine if Arg got changed back, and you just have this like King of Avalon sitting on <laughs> Nana Demselski's sofa, like and he's like, I used to eat cat litter. Because <laughs> the the humor of the series is very it's crude at times, yes. but it's a very lighthearted sort of humor, like a little slapstick too. And I feel That's like a having your dad. The- <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and having King Arthur himself show up could also open the door to some Monty Python references that I'd love to see. Personally, oh, I would love to see that. I love that. Monty Python. <laughs> and you know, like, and you know who would be a Monty leave, Python? Now leave, we shall touch you a second time. And you know who time. would be a Monty Python fan? Claire Nunez, absolutely a Monty Python fan. Oh yes, she would. She would grab the yes. coconuts from the kitchen and start doing the horse noises. She would. She would have a blast with it. <laughs> They, they gotta have some magical sorceress named Kevin. <laughs> there are some who call me Kevin. <laughs> oh my gosh, now I'm oh, yeah. just picturing Jim uh, yelling to Merlin like a high-pitched voice, Your father was a hamster, and your mother smelled of elderberries! <laughs> oh, you know they totally said that. And what's funny is that's actually an insult from the Middle Ages. Because, yeah! Well, yeah. yeah. And I feel like it'd be really hilarious to have them using these Shakespearean insults toward Merlin and having him get all huffy and hoity and toity, even though nobody else knows what they mean anymore. And of course, like, Claire I is built up as loving Shakespeare. Like, 
Oh yeah. <laughs> She'd have a heyday with yeah, that. Yeah, she absolutely would. I, I, I can see some more Shakespearean motives coming in. Me but too. Let's, yeah, let's I just hope it doesn't go to the extent of Romeo and Juliet. Yes, and I was going to say that. Yeah. Um, I do hope those scenes do not continue and to com- parallel Romeo and Juliet because we saw how that worked. But you yeah, could also get this idea of two people from different worlds, from different sides, um, torn apart if Claire perhaps becomes corrupted. I really like the idea of corrupted sorceress Claire. I think she's being built up as being the yeah, main connection. I can easily see to- her becoming... I can, I can see her becoming another Morgana easily. Oh, yeah. I really doubt Merlin would want to teach her magic. Like, considering his experience with Morgana, I really doubt he would want to teach anybody else. No, but Claire would be and, like, fine, I'll teach myself magic. I mean, she already taught and, herself how to use the shadow stuff. She already mastered that little trick that um, she got after Morgana's possession. Um, where she could, like, oh my gosh, I forget the incantation. It's like, Assassin's Zeus Connect Dune or something like that. And uh, it sounds something like that. Mm-hmm. And the shadow staff literally like teleports itself to her. Like it flies into her hand. Um, yep. She's already taught herself that. So I think she's on the road to becoming a very powerful sorceress without the staff. Um, which I think is going to be a big part of Claire's journey in Wizards. Um, I keep making Dragon Prince connections here, but much like Callum with the Primal Stone <laughs> um, in yes. Dragon Prince. Um, um, not going to go any further into that, just in case any viewers or listeners haven't seen the Dragon Prince, aren't into it. But basically this idea of this character losing their connection to magic, this, the source through which they do magic, but finding it within themselves. And Claire figuring out other ways to perhaps do magic and pursuing that interest... Yes. Yes. And among the other characters I can see getting interesting development in Wizards is Toby, especially. Mm. And there, there is something with like Nancy Dimsowski, really, and there is something with his parents. I yeah, that, that's that, off there because there, Nancy Dimsowski, if she were a spy in World War One, she'd have to be over a hundred and twenty years old. Yes. And the oldest woman to ever live was a French woman who lived to be a hundred and twenty-two. That's the oldest human who ever lived. Now, Nancy Domsalski doesn't look too bad for someone that age, <laughs> but it doesn't make any sense. But if you look at a photo on the mantle, she was a flapper in the 1920s. I mean, yeah, that would line up age-wise. But this just makes me think that Nancy is not who she says she is. No, I don't think and she's who she says she is. And I feel like if Toby has some sort of wizard ancestry, that might come into play with what happened to his parents. Like, they could have, they might not have been on a cruise, quote-unquote. They could have been out searching for some source of power or searching on a mission or if there's something that the wizards have been doing his parents might have died like that they might have been on some wizard mission or something and even without the nancy stuff um the entire story is strange enough as it is like the whole story of the storm and they went on a cruise and they never came back i mean it's almost as bad as the dog going to the farm like it's it's not believable it's very clearly made up and that is one area where i was kind of disappointed in Three Below and that I really wanted Toby to be the connection to the alien world, with Jim being the connection to the troll world and Claire being built up. There were a lot of theories. Yeah, and Claire being the one to have a connection to the wizarding world. Um, using the phrase wizarding world, I just keep thinking of Harry Potter. <laughs> um, 
it's, it feels, so, it feels yeah. weird saying it outside um, of that context. But I thought, I thought I just had, I thinking about Avalon again and the portals and the fetches. I almost wonder whether Toby's parents are actually dead because we've never seen a grave. And Toby says he visits them in the book, but those could just be statues put there. Yeah. I mean, it might be possible that they're still around, but they might be in Avalon for some reason. Like, I don't know, maybe some sort of wizard jail, like oh, yeah. broke the statue until, of secrecy or something. Until Toby goes to the grave and digs six feet down and sees the bodies in the casket. But even then it's not certain. It could be a different corpse. Um, you know, we do not know that his parents are dead. And I think that he was perhaps put with Nancy for a, a safety reason. Um, one of yes. those kind of plot lines of, okay, you know, I'll give him up, you take care of him, he'll be safe that way. Almost like yeah, Harry Potter. Like the, he'll be safe with you. Nancy's a lot less abusive than the Dursleys. Uh, luckily for Toby. But that same kind of idea, <laughs> whereas his parents are off fulfilling a much larger purpose that he doesn't know about. Yes. And I feel like Toby's going to have a larger part in Wizards. And I really look forward to seeing how his character develops because he went from being this really goofy, sort of a comical sidekick sort of character to being a fairly well developed character toward the end of Troll Hunters, and especially in Three Below. I mean, he didn't get as much spotlight as I'd like in Three Below, but I feel like his development of just being very acceptive toward the aliens and very kind toward them in a world where they really weren't welcome. To me, it goes to show what he truly is on the inside. He's a very good person. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And, a true Hufflepuff, yes. as I say. Yes. And we'll see a lot more of that. Like, maybe these wizards and witches don't feel welcome in this world. And Archie, the cat, is one of the first people to come up to Steve and Toby as they're kind of walking home. And honestly, I feel like that sort of goes to show that he's been watching these characters from the background and decided, hey, you guys are good enough. I'm going to come up and talk. It kind of comes back into this idea of everything being pulled together, coming back into this one place. I think a huge part of the beginning of Wizards, I think this is actually going to be the beginning conflict, is Jim, Claire, Blinky, and Merlin seeing that there's no Heartstone in New Jersey and coming back. And I think the main plot of the show is going to be rooted in Arcadia, as it always has been. That's another weird thing. So much of Tales of Arcadia has been rooted in Arcadia. We don't spend that much time um, on Acheridium 5 on 3 Below. I mean, you have the side plots with Zadra and all of that, but screen time-wise, it still feels very rooted in the town of Arcadia. And this whole New Jersey plotline seems really left field out of that trend. Or, you know... Yeah. where the series has been rooted um, thus far, you know, and going into the third installment, the third leg of the series, although I almost consider Wizards, because I have a feeling that Wizards is going to be the same length as Troll Hunters, and Three Below is just a smaller yeah. connecting bridge. Um, I think, I personally, narratively, almost view Wizards as the second yeah, big... something I've been thinking about is... Every place seems to have a mirror to it. Like, they talk about the ley lines connecting things. And I can talk from a spirituality standpoint as a pagan, but ley lines, we usually consider them to be sort of like the threads of life that sort of connect us from one place to another, from one person to an animal, to a place, to a tree. Yes. And they're sort of the threads that make up the universe. So I'm wondering if that's more the leaning that they're taking with these ley lines, quote-unquote, in the series. Like, the heartstones are just like 
pool, so this energy, like animals to a watering hole in the savanna. Yeah. Like the hearthstones are just like concentrated forms of this energy of life and happiness and all this good stuff and it's all in just one big pool but it exists everywhere like you can find a stream of it or again ley lines that connect a planet or a city or Ocaridian 5 would be connected to earth via ley lines I mean look at where they kept the core like the aliens chose to keep Galen's core on earth in that tomb that Kanjigar kind of built mm-hmm. and it just makes me think that all these places are connected by these life forces like threads in a cloth, like each person's story interacting with another. And much like the overlapping story threads from Troll Hunters to Three Below and from Three Below going into Wizards, they all interact. Like there's no, okay, this series ends and the other begins right after. It's, they interact like a quilt. Like they're separate colors, they're separate people, but they're still all connected by Arcadia and by their own stories interacting with each other. Right, it's not a puzzle, it's interwoven. It's interwoven. It's interwoven. And, and honestly, that just makes me think that Arcadia itself is connected directly to Avalon. Like, we watched portals open here and there, and then the Darklands and the Shadow Realm. Who's to say you can't just open a portal and step out into the green fields of whatever? Like, maybe there's an Arcadia Avalon. Like, we've seen Arcadia as a suburb of Los Angeles, but maybe there's an Arcadia on the other side of the portal with its own group of kids. Yeah. Like Aja and Krell and Zadra and Varvados Vex are the main characters of Ocaridian 5. And we've got Claire, Toby, and Jim being the main characters of Troll Hunters. Who's to say that Duke C, the pink haired girl, whatever her name is, and any other characters might be the folks that got pulled from Avalon? Like, are they hiding? Absolutely. Or are they and also, guys? something to point out Arcadia, Ocaridian 5. Avalon. So you have this A theme. And mm-hmm. with Acaridium 5 being introduced as kind of the Arcadia equivalent home base of three below for our characters, even though we don't spend much time there screen time wise, that's where our characters are rooted. Um and we see that maintained throughout the duration of the show, them connecting to their Acaridian ident- um identities, particularly as royals. And Avalon could be wizard's <laughs> dimension or planet or whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. um and all of these places are connected in fate but i also have a lot of questions about how galen's core ended up in the bottom of troll market <laughs> um so to well, my understanding we're already very far beneath the ground in troll market and we're going even further down into the deep so my question is are we almost at the mantle? Is it implied that we're almost at the center of the Earth and Galen's core is being held at the center of the planet? I don't know if that's sinking too deeply into it. That would it. be uh, molten magma. Like, yeah. At some point, it gets too hot to dig and too hot to do anything else. Right. Like we see with the uh, volcanic trolls. Yes. And I feel like the aliens who might have you know contacted Earth every once in a while might have realized, hey, this kind of inhospitable mud ball would be a really great place to hide this important thing because no one's going to go looking for it. And that's what we saw in Three Below. Right. And I hadn't even and been there for that long. Kanjigar who's only the troll hunter before Jin. It's not like this was generations before. Um, He's the one who put it there. And my question is also, did the Deep already have that defense mechanism of making the person who goes down into it confront their worst fear? Was that already there and that's also part of why they hid it there? Or did that happen because Galen's core was placed there? Did it release this kind of energy as a... Because you see that 
what happens in um in the deep is really almost an illusion it's a mental game it's nothing physical and mm-hmm. it would make sense for me for galen's court to have an almost self-defense mechanism like that built in to prevent people from getting to it in which case and- i think the fact that krell is the one who gets past that and defeats it is fascinating especially with his in my opinion autistic coding yeah. Krell is a fascinating character, and I honestly love the way he's written, and the fact that he was able to get through the deep was awesome. And it goes to show that even though he has this sort of cold, aloof, you know, facade, we see the people he loves and the people he cares about surrounding him, and he it shows that he considers Arcadia home, even though he put up this act of really wanting to go home and getting the Daxler away. And it was just fascinating to see him go from that sort of character to just loving Earth and loving the people around him on Earth. Absolutely. But the narrative about swap Galen's of Avin Krell's arcs, I find very fascinating. Katie. Oh, were you talking? Well, I was thinking. Sorry. Yeah, I was. You're, you're good. I was thinking about the defense mechanism you're describing. The characters have all gone down to the deep for one reason or another at the end of each subsequent season. Like in Three Below, it was to get Galen's core. In Troll Hunters, it was because Jim was being punished for going into the uh, Darklands by himself. I think there's something else down there. Something way deeper. And we're going to see that in Wizards. Like, whatever is causing that hallucinatory effect and whatever is keeping those zombie gum gums in Troll Market alive corrupting the Hearthstone is something way deeper below Troll Market. And we already saw that Morgana was entombed within a shard of Hearthstone far beneath Troll Market, but was freed. So there could be something further below that. Absolutely. And it might also have something to do with whatever caused Morgana to become what she is now. And it might also be the key to why all of this is happening to Arcadia. Like, if when I describe the ley lines and energy as water to an oasis... I'm almost thinking it's like if you dug a well, like uh, you'd have a lot of water. Maybe there's something like an, a well of energy, a pool, a giant ocean of these ley line energies just pooling beneath Arcadia. And it's gathering all this weirdness like animals to water. And that's why like the, the wizards trolls, were the, drawn the wizards, the, to Arcadia specifically. And that's why the consequentially aliens. the aliens and everyone. And that's why everything was pulled there. That pool of energy I, I almost feel like it's like a like a pooling of all these separate streams coming together and this is where it connects. And that's the magnet. That's what's making all of this happen in this specific town. It's and it's fascinating. It's like a heart. It's like it is literally a heart. a heart. And each heart stone and is got- a part of the heart? Question mark? Maybe. Maybe. But it just makes me wonder because they emphasized so strongly that, you know, Galen's heart was hidden beneath Troll Market. Who's to say there's not something buried beneath that that even they didn't know about? And that's where I think the wizards are going to come in as well. Because reading the art of Troll Hunters, Merlin's power and Merlin's design are specifically technological, but Morgana's power comes from sunlight. Now, this leads me to ask, and I think I mentioned this on one of our earlier topics. But why would she want to create the Eternal Night if her power comes from sunlight? It doesn't make any sense. That would be like trying to get solar power set up in the middle of winter or the middle of the night. Like, yeah, it'll work when the sun comes up, but yeah. or in like Morgana the deepest canyon. Sunlight. 
or the deepest canyon in the world. Like, you know, right. it's not going to be that effective. So my theory is that whatever is corrupting or controlling her created the eternal night to block out the sun and thus block out Morgana's power, thus keeping her from being able to take control of herself. And also think about where but she was now, far beneath the ground, mm-hmm. kept from her power. Far beneath the ground, sealed in a rock. Yes. Yep. And thinking about it, she's stuck in the shadow realm now. Her powers are gone. She's once she's away from her the Hearthstone, once she's away from sunlight and the human world, and obviously she's nowhere near Avalon. She might as well be powerless. Like she probably has some of her own residual magic, you know, being born with it. But whatever is controlling her, whatever was using her like a puppet, would have absolutely no reason to continue doing so. But there's a lot of plot, I I wouldn't call them a plot hole, more like an unanswered question, since we honestly don't know what's going to happen in Wizards going forward. But I'm really excited to see how some of these plots turn out. Yes, absolutely, and how all these threads interconnect. We've talked um, very extensively about how interwoven all these things are, but also, these are, at the end of the day, theories. And I do want to make that very clear. We are not, like, I mean, (laughs) we actually have a... Aaron Waltka was nice enough to leave a statement for us, which we're going to be yeah. playing at the end of this podcast. But we are not on the inside of like, oh, we know what's happening in the writer's room. This is all speculation. Yeah. And there are we're different just a theories. couple of bloggers. Yeah, absolutely. And like, are, I, are I'm just theories that, you know, have logic behind them to support them that conflict with each other. Things could intertwine in many different ways. But we could be completely wrong. Like it could, it could end like Money Python. The police just come and arrest everybody. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, we could. And we could listen back honestly, to this podcast in a year or so theories. and be like, "Oh, <laughs> what were we, we thinking? Were, we were way left field." Um, or we could come back and be like, "We nailed it, called it, yeah, absolutely." But probably it's going to be somewhere yeah. in between. Um, something's right, something's and, wrong. Honestly, I hope we can keep doing podcasts with Tales of Arcadia because, especially after Wizards, so I, I I suspect things are going to go big in Wizards. Oh yeah, and yeah, I figure it's like either the key word some other theories could be right. And of Wizards is just epic, epic. Yeah, that's my thought. Like, there's some characters who have been my favorite since the beginning, and a few others that I just kind of lost interest in. But honestly, I'm really fascinated by the character of Morgana and. Honestly, she's very, very beautiful. (laughs) And I just can't wait to see her character development, how she goes forward as a character, even though she's not the main character in the slightest. I think that's going to change to an extent, though, going into Wizards, because with every change of show, we get a shift in protagonists. The previous protagonists kind of become not necessarily just cameos but they do serve as side characters but their role is substantially minimized and i think that we're going to see the opposite thing happen with morgana much like we did with audrey and krell where we saw them as kind of a little cameo at the end of troll hunters and then it connected into three below but with morgana well we've been introduced to her at the end of troll hunters like we were audrey and krell and the show is called Wizards and very clearly focusing on the wizard community. And she and Merlin are some of the only two confirmed wizards who we've met. So I absolutely think that um, her role is only going to grow bigger, especially 
once she's out of the shadow realm because I firmly believe that she will get out of the shadow realm. That, that armor is just sure, too pretty and shiny for her to stay there. I'm pretty sure when she does get out of the Shadow Realm, <laughs> when she does get out of that Shadow Realm, I'm pretty sure you'll be able to hear my screams from the moon. <laughs> I can pretty much promise you that. I, I thought you were going to say Minnesota. <laughs> yeah. No matter where you are, you will not escape. And yeah. Oh, and before this podcast ends, I'd honestly like to take a moment to really, really honestly thank the Rochester, Minnesota Public Library for allowing me to use their professional sound booth and recording equipment for two hours of this session. And I'm just super grateful for the help they've given me. So, yes, thank you. Yes, we love our local libraries. Thank you. And I think, honestly, going forward into Wizards, I'm... I can wrap this up by saying Morgana's my favorite character, but I can't wait to see everybody else and how all these characters and their plot lines are just beautifully woven together by Aaron Walkie and Guillermo del Toro. And really just this beautiful, fresh storyline that I wish more people knew about. And it's a very... I say I can easily see it becoming a classic DreamWorks piece. Oh, absolutely. And a classic Netflix staple amongst the multitudes of high quality storytelling and content which they've been producing yes really the storylines in tales of arcadia so far have just been beautifully written heartbreaking at times and absolutely gut-bustingly funny at others like i think the moment i left actually there was a moment in troll hunters where i laughed so hard i had a literal asthma attack okay and for people who know me that's not a really good thing (laughs) and it was the moment in reckless club where senior ul confiscates toby's burrito and winds up having to run to the men's room and Mary <laughs> and the kids are all like leaning out into the hallway listening and Mary says Sounds like lasagna getting shot out of a t-shirt cannon. <laughs> I knew exactly where you were going with that. Oh, oh that my gosh, too epic. good. Like, it's like a broken yogurt machine. So... <laughs> oh my gosh, okay. But that is particularly funny oh, to me now because we have a frozen yogurt machine at the dining commons in my college and it breaks <laughs> down all the time. Like this thing is not working more than it's working. So I have heard what a broken yogurt machine sounds like and it is not pretty. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, that was honestly one of the funniest moments. And then when um another moment was in Three Below where they're trying to fight those little alien bugs that Aja released and Farvana Svex picks up Luke and he goes he, he's got this dog and he's holding the dog like it's some sort of like weapon he's like unleash your intestinal fury so Jax is really in line Classic. with my kind of humor a lot of yeah. his lines I, just I feel like real good I love all the stuff that comes out of his mouth <laughs> Yeah, Veratos is hands down one of my favorites. I mean, he, he's funny. He takes himself so seriously, but he's also like, I know some people hate those dream sequences with the hearts and the levy things, but I feel like Varvatos Vex had the perfect one. Like, it goes to show that even though he takes himself so seriously as this Mashimo warrior guy, he's just a big softy romantic. Oh, yeah, and I think his human identity let allowed him to kind of explore that side of himself. But... I enjoy the little, um, you know, animated bits with the hearts and all that. I think in the Pixie episode, it was very yes. funny. 
Um, and for me, it's just minimal enough where like it's not overkill. <laughs> um, yeah. So I enjoy those little bits. I think they're very funny, and I think they're a really nice, refreshing douse of humor and change of tone that doesn't go too far off kilter, but kind of lightens things up for a little bit. Yes, it does. To me, they just show that you know the characters take themselves so seriously, and then they have this other character come along, and like Varvatos describing Nana as this silver-haired warrior, and he's like completely in love and it's adorable it's just adorable and i absolutely love and when it. he opens the door chasing noam chomsky and he's like silver haired temptress <laughs> it's brilliant it, it was it's brilliant it's sweet it's well done and actually you just remember me in that scene if you watch it merlin's actually walking around in the background across the are street. you serious like, i gotta wonder oh my gosh i never noticed that I, i'm serious you're gonna have to rewatch is it is that and during a house divide that must be during just, the house divided though yeah yeah it, it just narratively when that, they find you know, him in the canal yeah and it just makes me think that Merlin stepped out of the garage and saw this old man running around the neighborhood with a dog chasing after Nome and just went, you know what? Nope. Going back inside. You guys have a great day. maybe he was like, wow, another old dude to talk with. And he sees that he's like completely insane. And (laughs) I'm not the craziest one here. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Plot uh, my ruining this child's life. Oh, yeah. Again. All right. Yeah, so we've been talking for quite a bit, and I think now is a good time to wrap up our main discussion on Tales of Arcadia and go into some questions that were sent in for us um, by some followers of our blogs. So first, from Friendly Spooderman. I love that username. Um, I just always want to sing it to the Spider-Man tune. Friendly neighborhood Spooderman. <laughs> um, and they asked, what are you looking forward to the least when Wizards launches? And for me, it is absolutely fandom drama um with every oh, with everyone yeah. coming back online it happens inevitably it's not pretty um and with that many the more are the worst. yes <laughs> normally we're the one fandom who likes trolls but in this case um not so much and yeah. as more people come on the more space there is for that with more people interacting and discussing and you definitely have to be careful um next from Grandmaster Twink, we have favorite episode slash moment and why, and also what's your favorite platonic oh. or, or romantic relationship? So I know I have my favorite episode, and that's Claire in Present Danger. I that was the moment that like I already was loving the series so much, but it was that episode that I knew like I was not going to be getting any sleep tonight because I had to see this room finish it. Um, that's what really made me realize that this was something truly, truly special. And particularly, um, I think you can guess the moment that I'm getting at here, when Jim summons the amulet and that incredible music plays, which is played again when Claire forms the Shadow Staff, which is probably, I'm sorry, when Claire uses the Shadow Staff to form a portal um, at the end of episode season two, episode 13. Um, which is a beautiful parallel, first of all, between the two characters. And but also um, because in that moment, Jim is very much sacrificing something for Claire, where he gets caught in the woods and tells her to run away. And later, we see Claire saving everyone else, and I think that's very beautiful. But the music is just epic. They played it in the Aquaman trailer, and when I saw that, I, I freaked out. I was like, "That's 
that's Tales of Arcadia. That's my fandom. <laughs> um, for a yeah. movie. Yes. Um, and I have to say, I think my favorite episode, just for the humor and the jokes and how well written it was, was A Hero with a Thousand Faces. Oh, the gym good. clones have become an absolute staple. <laughs> I, I want to see more gym clones yes. just because I think I remember reading that Anthony Elchin had the most fun with that episode, doing all those different characters and personas and seeing more gym clones would be funny because this would bring the opportunity to have gym clones who are like full troll, half troll, yeah. human gym, you know, human gym, but blue. And you know, <laughs> I, I get... I can think of a, a million other gym clones and just having them running around and causing chaos. I'm just imagining chaos. him being nicknamed Smurf Jim. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that would be yes, funny. That episode was entirely created due to um, Anton Yelkin, though, wanting to showcase this range and to have fun with the different sides of this character. And they literally made that a physical thing. And it ended up being just an absolute goldmine for comedy. Uh, yes. Um, the next one is from souls dash before dash goals. Um, that's like not the word dash, but like the symbol saying it out. So you can find these people on Tumblr. They're wonderful. Um, and they ask, what character would you want to come back? No matter how out of bounds it may seem. Um, they also added, if Ginger says Morgana, I called it. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> okay. Well, you call it, <laughs> but if I'm being entirely honest, Morgana is mine too. I think she is so heavily rooted in the future of where this narrative is going and who's at the center of it. And I'm so excited to see her return from the Shadow Realm. Um, Call me Captain Predictable. <laughs> and I also, instead of Captain Obvious. <laughs> anyways, um, yes, Morgana is honestly very much mine as well. Um, I'm very excited to see Aja. Though, um, ruling Acridium 5, I really love both Aja and Krell's narrative arcs in terms of how they swap, where at first it seems like Aja's the one forming a stable home on Earth, and Krell's the one who wants to go back home, and then it ends up swapping as these characters mature, and Krell realizes that through his vision in the deep, really, that Earth is where he belongs, this is where he's made his friends, this is his home, and Aja matures to see the duty that she has on her home planet. And that's where fate is leading her. That's where her life is taking her. So I really love that narrative and I'm excited to see Aja in that role. Um, I also am excited to see her do long distance with Steve. <laughs> um, I think that Steve is, Steve strikes me as a very clingy boyfriend. And I think that he's going to have a very hard time doing long distance. He's kind of needy. <laughs> absolutely very needy. I'm picturing many, many, Skype calls, you know, intergalactic Skype calls. <laughs> um, and Aja's like, I love you, Steve. Talk about an expensive phone bill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, to quote Toby. <laughs> I'll cover the charges! Um, <laughs> but uh, I love Blinky, oh my gosh. <laughs> I need to do, we need to do a whole podcast episode just on Blinky. We can invite Arcadia Trash onto here. We really could. She would love that. <laughs> um Shout out, Katie yeah. Trash. Your your blog is amazing, um, but that is probably the other person who I'm most excited for, and of course, the Troll Hunters gang returning. Mm-hmm. And lastly, um, from Icy and the Frostbites, um, who I initially met on Ginger's Discord, actually, uh, she sent in a whole bunch 
of questions. So um, due to Ginger's time restraints, we're, I think we're going to do this just rapid fire. <laughs> so which of the characters do you feel has changed the most mentally and emotionally and the least? So uh, I, uh, I, honestly, honestly, I'd say Merlin changed the least out of any characters we can recognize. Yeah, Merlin or actually I'd Claire. say Jim changed the most. Yeah, um, I definitely think Jim changed the most. Absolutely. The change from season one, episode one to uh, Troll Hunter season three, episode 13 is tremendous. Um, and not, not just the visual stuff of him being blue and like a foot taller and all of that, um, being half troll. Um, but internally as well, he's been very, very changed by all of his experiences. For me, the least Merlin and also Claire. Claire is fantastic, but she doesn't really change all that much as a person. Um, she's, she's pretty stable, I feel like. She does change somewhat, but I feel like even Toby goes through a more monumental transformation than her. Um, Aja and Krell both gross, go through really big mental changes, but I, I still think Jim takes the cake. Absolutely. Um, and I think that comes from him being the main protagonist of the series with the biggest arc <laughs> thus far. Um, you know, with Three Below being half the link to Troll Hunters. Uh, has time made a few of the jokes stale? For me, no. <laughs> um, I myself still get a kick out of Hero with a Thousand Faces. I There aren't really any lines that I can think of that still don't make me chuckle when I hear them. Yeah. Anything that Varvato says makes me laugh. Um, a lot of blinky stuff. His wonderful chaotic energy makes me laugh. Um, one of my favorite things, little things... Um, this is like my equivalent to the quote you were describing, um, but that you love. But I forget what episode it's in. It's in the second half of season one, and it's when he's uncovering the riddle, and he just goes, "Burn, baby, burn!" <laughs> and I quote that all the time. Though now, like I live in New England, so like throughout the whole winter, you run a fire in your house, um, and I'll be in, like, I'll have to do the fire that night or whatever and I'll, I'll do that as I'm lighting it I'm like burn baby um it's it's so fun I don't know what about it um I also just have a special connection to Blinky loving history and books so yeah um long answer short no time has not made any of the jokes still for me if you could yeah I honestly love all of them next if you could change one thing about either Troll Hunters or Three Below, what would it be? Um, a more satisfying ending for Jim's narrative, but even that's hard to say because that's yeah. being completed yeah. in Wizards. Yeah, because I mean, I would say that what they did to Jim wasn't exactly my favorite thing, as anyone who knows me would say. But then again, we don't know what's going to happen in Wizards, so I'll change my answer to. Honestly, I feel like Numura should have gotten more screen time. Ooh. We just didn't see a lot of her development. Yeah, I mean, because she, she can sucked into the dark like a dart, and she's running yeah. a museum. Yeah, that. So that's what I would change. Numura needs more screen time. So yeah. so yeah, and you have that whole theory with the museum lady, which I totally buy. I didn't even notice that. But she, well, I didn't even notice it until a few days yeah. ago. Yeah. So. Um, if you're if you're wondering what we're talking about, look on Ginger's blog. It's pretty. Uh, recent, so you should be able to find it. Yeah. Um, it would take way too long to cover yeah. here. Essentially, there's a lady in the museum who has a very unique character design and build, which implies that she's not just an extra, because most of those are recycled, and she could be connected to wizards in Nomura. Um, next, 
Which characters do you think got screwed over the most? Oh. Oh. Uh, I'd say, um, if I can think, I'm just going to list them. Jim, Morgana, Claire. I mean, with each of those, Jim had to give up his humanity for some wizard who didn't even say thank you. Morgana, well, if she's possessed by something or someone, she's probably not too happy right now. And Claire, her parents kind of aren't doing their job very well. And she didn't really have... It sounds like she didn't really have a good childhood. And, I mean, she has to take care of her baby brother while taking care of all her high school curriculum. Yes. So, I mean, come on. The girl needs a vacation oh, yeah. already. I did a whole post about that. One of the show writers commented on it, um, thanking me for pointing that out, about how Claire has her very own kind of stress going on being a politician's daughter, um, which is contrasted to Jim's stress in the kind of fantasy world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... For me, the, the answer is really Jim. Um, you know, as, as well as Morgana, I agree that, like, in terms of history, it seems like she got really screwed over. But that's also something that I, I hesitate to say for this, because I think it's going to be further delved into in Wizards, as we've established yep, definitely. in our conversation. But I'm going to go completely left field and say Toby. There is a really big sense of injustice in my eyes with the, his plot yes. at the end of Troll Hunters, the fact that he's left behind. I understand part of the logic and I know that we needed to have someone from the original gang to ground three below um because I don't think Steve and Eli would have been enough I do think we needed Toby there to really intertwine the two series more firmly um because I think people forget that Steve isn't as present in Troll Hunters as most people remember him to be he is but he really shines more in Three Below. And I think yes. if we hadn't had Toby there to also back that up and see this character from the original trio who we're familiar with, I think the connection between the two series would have been a lot weaker. And there also would have been more of a disconnect to the fans where, where um, those original characters in the town of Arcadia is really home. And I think it helped ease the transition for fans into this new segment of the trilogy. But that I think we all were nervous about. Um, before Three Below dropped, mm -hmm. we really weren't sure what to expect. So I think that was very important. So yeah, uh, Toby really got screwed over. Um, for granted, he's not missing out on much, not going to New Jersey. But <laughs> um, I just think of King... His friends are gone, I mean... <laughs> Whenever they talk about New Jersey, though, I just think of King Julian's quote in Madagascar 2. This place is a dump, are you sure we're not in New Jersey? <laughs> <laughs> My family quotes yeah. that all the time, so the I think of it. State. Yep. <laughs> and the last question um, from Icy and the Frostbites is, how has the fandom changed and influenced you over the years? So I, for one, haven't actually been here that long. Um, I have been the Tales of Arcadia. I've been a fan of Tales of Arcadia for just over two years. I discovered the show in December of 2017. However, I didn't start my blog till much, much later than that until mm, not March, April, <laughs> had to think about that for a second, until April um, of 2019. And I didn't start posting consistently until that May. So I haven't been influenced in terms of the fandom and the Tumblr community over the years, just over this past year. But I will say that it has completely changed my life in the best way. Um, I spontaneously made a funny post about Merlin. <laughs> um, 
in essentially, you know, Merlin hate train, um, which was thriving back then, post-season three. Um, <laughs> you know, sense of injustice for what was done to Jim. I made a funny post, and <laughs> it was really a hit. And I realized that, wow, I could have a place here. Um, putting my thoughts down about all these things that I love. Because for so many years, I had all these stories that I loved. I was in so many fandoms. And I kind of just internalized all these on Tumblr what would be made of posts and analysis and thoughts and even jokes. You know, just just funny little... Um, oh gosh, I don't want to cuss. Just funny little... I was going to say shit post. Um, I'm going to edit that out. Just funny little post. And delving into that head first and the journey it's been has been amazing. I'm starting to do art, all of that. I, if you told me this time last year that I would have been doing all this, I would have laughed in your face. I would have been like, yeah, right. Um, so it's been a yeah. remarkable journey. And Ginger, your journey has been over a much longer period of time. You've been here for yes. like yes. three years, right? Yep. <laughs> About that, actually. Um, after I, I started watching the show, I I got involved with the fandom a little bit, but I really wasn't anything too big. Um, there was obviously a lot of fandom drama, but I kind of stopped caring about that. And it's been, honestly, I think a positive influence on me because I never imagined I'd be doing a podcast or that my art skills have improved the way they have or that people would be interested in my own original stories. Well, because of being a part of fandom. And I feel most people also know me because I really feel like the injustice that happened to Jim at the end of season three still needs to be addressed. And I still hate Merlin easily, the least likable character in the entire series. And that's like, well, okay, actually, second least likable. I forgot Seamus' dad was a thing. I completely forgot about that guy until this point. But yeah, I feel like the fandom has shaped me to be a lot stronger of a person, more creative, and thinking of these theories and wrapping my head around the plot lines has made me a better writer as it is. And because I think of ways I can subvert tropes or use them to my advantage. And interacting and making some really amazing friends like like Emmy and Katie and just tons and tons of new friends, new friends I've made. And then ones who've basically been there this whole time. It's really awesome. And it's sort of a fun way to get involved with the art community and with writing. So yeah, I really, and having the writers of my favorite show interact is just amazing. And I think that would be a perfect time to seek into our next section. Don't you think? I absolutely do. I saw where you were going with that. <laughs> um, so for the end of this podcast, we would like to leave the fans off with a very special. Yeah. For the end of this podcast, we would like to leave the fans off with a very special message from the one and only Aaron Walka, one of the head writers on Tales of Arcadia. Here's what he has to say to you. Hello, this is Aaron Walke. Uh, I'm a writer from the series Troll Hunters and the co-executive producer and co-showrunner of the upcoming Netflix series Wizards Tales of Arcadia uh, from Guillermo del Toro and DreamWorks Animation. While there isn't much I'm allowed to reveal about the show, just know that I'm on absolute tenterhooks over here waiting for you all to see the final chapter in the Arcadia saga. The many years that so many incredible artists have spent crafting this story from its origins in Troll Hunters to its, its inevitable conclusion will be well worth the wait. Making Wizards was a tremendous and rewarding challenge uh, as we sought to bring together the past and future of the series while creating a bold new chapter of the franchise with its own identity, with characters new and old evolving in surprising ways. 
Uh, Guillermo often called the creative dynamic of Tales of Arcadia a special alchemy, the synergy between writers, artists, directors, and actors bringing their absolute best. It's one that's difficult to summon, but a wonder to behold when it happens. Thank you for going on this adventure with us, and I hope you enjoy the ride. Okay, all right. and that will be all. Thank you so much for watching the first episode of the Arcadia Ledger podcast. I'm so excited to go on this journey with you. Ginger should hopefully be joining me for future episodes. Um, the next one is planned yep. to be the Dragon Prince. We are also teaming up with a and very exciting sure. account. Um, I don't want to reveal who it is yet, though, just in case. Um, okay. But spoilers. look out for spoilers. <laughs> okay, River Song. Um, we need to do a Doctor Who episode together. Oh, my goodness. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That would be very fun. But... <laughs> Sorry oh, yes. for everyone who didn't get that reference. <laughs> um, Ginger and I are both Whovians. But uh, the next episode should be the Dragon Prince, and we're teaming up with a very exciting account. So look out for that announcement. And for now, that will be all. Arcadia Ledger signing off.